0: Namaste, motherfuckers!
1: Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self help, and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called Nourishment Sisterhood, Stomach, and Soul. As the title suggests, we talk a fair bit about food in this episode. So here are a few food facts you might like to know before we kick off. According to a study of 10 European countries, people in the UK have been eating more fruit and veg during the pandemic, but they also reported the largest increase in consumption of cereals, alcohol, comfort foods and tasty treats. So basically the world is just gorging on shit. A 2015 study found no correlation between eating apples and doctor visits, so an apple a day does not keep the doctor away. But, apparently, an apple a day is linked to fewer prescriptions. Weird. A study showed that people who eat chocolate are less likely to show symptoms of depression, but the study does not clarify if less depressed people are likely to eat more chocolate or if eating chocolate causes them not to be depressed. Best eat chocolate, just to be sure. And finally, Dr John Kellogg invented cornflakes because he believed eating bland food would curb people's urge to indulge in the most dangerous of pastimes, masturbation.
0: That's new. That's That's just happened on an earlier one as well. Continue. I'm prepared to be recorded.
1: That's my guest today, award-winning comedian, actor, podcaster and writer, Jess foster Q. In Jess's hit podcast, Hoovering, she talks with her guests about their relationships with food. Between 1.25 and 3.4 million people in the UK are affected by an eating disorder and eating disorders are most common between the ages of 16 and 40 years old. Over 75% of those affected are female. You look like um, a children's TV presenter because you're in Dungarees and you're in a sort of like, this is my fun workshop cupboard.
0: I'm gonna fucking take it. I'll take it. (laughs) I'm taking that as a compliment.
1: You may know Jess from Motherland on the BBC or as a regular co-host of The Guilty Feminist. Her most recent Edinburgh show, Hench, meaning strong and muscular, which centers around Jess's weightlifting and her sexist son, won multiple accolades and propelled Jess onto every TV and radio show going. Jess is now touring the show in the UK. Jess and I talked about success, failure, parenting, love, emotions, women, men, comedy, creativity, self-belief, self-care, food, body image, growing up in Dorset, airbrushing and weightlifting. But I started by asking her about goldfish.
0: I had a goldfish, two goldfish as a kid, and um, both times, one time uh, my mum, well, the first time uh, a much younger cousin came, and she was only two, and fed them too much and it died of gluttony.
1: Yeah, that happens ne- a lot.
0: Yeah. And, um, no, you know, it's probably my bad or her, you know, we shouldn't have let her in the, just alone in a room with a fish. And the second time things were going much better. And then, sort of without asking, my mum just gave them away, including the whole tank and everything to um, the school she was working in.
1: <laughs> really?
0: Oh, so, uh, okay, cool. I mean, I wasn't that attached to them, fish, but yeah.
1: But of interesting, bit of parenting there. Very interesting, <laughs>
0: bit of parenting, bit of repurposing, bit of upcycling.
1: I'm also wondering if that's where your thing about food uh, came up. You know, when you saw a fish literally explode with overfood yeah. as a young child, I went, right? Like, I need wow. to have
0: a conversation with my therapist. Yeah.
1: About the, have you not done the goldfish years yet in therapy? The
0: goldfish <laughs> years. Somebody was telling me that they uh, their daughter's got a pet horse and that they their daughter has um decided the kindest thing is to not ride the horse and they want to give the horse a compassionate life for the horse is allowed to just eat what it wants but when a horse gets what the kid is not understanding that the horse if the horse gets too overweight it gets laminitis or something and does die so they like need to be rid like they need to be exercised we all need
1: to be ridden and
0: we all need <laughs> <laughs> And there we go. You're on.
1: <laughs> and I think we're done. So thank you, Jess. Um, we're done.
0: Thank you Good so luck. much. Great. Okay, great. Good luck
1: up. with the tour. And, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you again. <laughs> so you It's um, nice to see you It's again. really nice to see you. And um, I mean, the pandemic was a bit of an arse for a lot of people. Uh, but it was a bit of a bugger for you because you were really on fire in the lead up to the pandemic and about to do, not that you're not on fire now, but you were no, literally very, on very everything. Much simmering now. You're, no, but you're, you're not simmering, but to have to stop that, that bit, that cut and thrust mm. that you'd waited over a decade to get. Mm. And then literally, what was it? Six months after Edinburgh, after Hench, that this all happened?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was like halfway through tour and just about to go to Melbourne. Um, I mean, I'm just too honest on podcasts. If I'm honest, which I'm about to be, I was pleased about the break from live work because it was bonkers, really. Like, I think I was getting to the point of being a bit of a woman on the edge. Like, I started even the previews for that show because of where my life was at at the time, so full of adrenaline and kind of, you know, running on fumes from May, that I had a lovely time in Edinburgh, but then to go straight from that into the types of work I'd never got before, and happy, loving it, like just, you know, flying flying through the world on the wings of gratitude, enjoying it while it lasts, etc. But by March, actually, having not stopped through that whole run and staring down the barrel of another, probably I think another three months of tour, um, It took me almost this entire year to really miss live work.
1: (laughs) Really? And did you? you Because I was on
0: on the edge of an adrenaline burnout, I think. Um, And I, I think again, I've just sort of approached it with gratitude. If that the pandemic had happened to me, like on the one hand, you're like, oh shit, yeah, you kind of you stop in the middle of the momentum. But I I feel I've really haven't seen it like that in the sense that if it happened the pandemic a year before. I'd have been fucked. No one was mm. my most. Of my income was live work. No one was interested in anything I wanted to write. No one was putting me on any radio or telly. Radio and telly are the things that carried on, ish. Not in the lockdown one, but mm-hmm. in, from this winter onwards. Also, I had two and eventually three scripts to write, which if it happened before, no one would have ever paid me to write a script, let alone three of the fuckers. And I look at it and go, were I still doing all the live work? I don't know when I'd have ever written it. Mm -hmm. Not with that level of, you know, it would have just taken so much longer to, each pass Mm -hmm. would have taken so much longer to submit, whereas I just had to sort of become a writer for a year and do the odd Zoom gig to keep my stand-up brain doing something. But, yeah.
1: So you didn't, for anyone who's been under a rock, um, Hench, which was your Edinburgh 2019 show... Yeah. And got a shit tonne of very hard won and well-deserved praise. Um, well, I'll let you summarise. But I've seen I've seen the show twice, but um, just thought I'd get that in there, you know. Uh, uh, not even as Thanks prep for no. this, just because I liked it. I saw it once and then I wanted my daughter to see it. And she was very glad she did, my 21-year-old daughter. Um, oh. But t- tell me what Hench, tell us what Hench was and is. It's a show,
0: I thought I was writing a show about strength. And then I think in the end I wrote a Show as much about the confines of perceived gender as much as about strength, actually. But it's still about strength a bit. I love weightlifting more now, even than when I wrote that show, actually. And then um, I had somebody give me a flirty compliment in the gym and call me Hench, and I was devastated. But in my mind, I knew it's ridiculous to be devastated. I was like, it's, you are here getting stronger and bigger, and you're loving it. So, why? Does that sting? That doesn't make any sense. And it's out of anything, I think, when you're a comedian, one of the massive silver linings to all the things very hard about being a comedian is that you can take any little bit of internal conflict like that and take it as the seed to grow a show out of, really. Because actually, I think there's a lot of that. On those themes, there's a lot of what, like wanting things I don't understand why I want, and things where I, I know in my mind, I know intellectually where am I, what I should feel, but it just, you don't get to choose what you feel. And actually centuries of being told to be smaller and quieter and weaker effectively are often louder, madly, than the knowledge that that's insane, though.
1: And it's yeah. really hard though, isn't it, to know even to resolve those things or know what the conflict is inside ourselves, even to articulate that in a way that makes any sense. Yeah. And then that's without the shame and guilt of, but then I shouldn't be feeling these things like shit. Yes. I'm out there on stage being this person. And how could I begin? Yes, to totally. acknowledge It's that, so yeah. comical,
0: isn't it? That, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it's exactly that. you like, well, you've got, right, okay, so I've, I've had this emotion I didn't want, and intellectually I know I'm better than that, and then you have the emotional, then you have a of guilt that you didn't have the right, yeah, and it just sort of, tumble, it can go on and on and on, unless you sort of call time on it somewhere and just admit that it's okay to be flawed.
1: And it's such a balancing act, isn't it? When you think about, I guess, all the themes that come up, and it is a very sort of, um, to use a, a wank word, uh, not, not a word you would wank to, but a wanky word. It is very nuanced, the show, and as well as obviously being very funny and brilliantly written, and you do perform it. I mean, that the, the hard bits in it, the difficult bits, like having your baby and stuff like that are so brilliantly done. And But it's also about the kind of messaging on those themes. If you're thinking about, you're not there to be an ambassador for positive body image, you're there to be a comedian but the fact is you do have influence and that's quite a responsibility right when people suddenly start I know you're used to that co-hosting the um the guilty feminist and stuff but it's a big deal to do a show with those themes in it isn't it Mm. um yeah I think so um
0: I don't know I yeah part of me still struggles to take that on board to be honest like I hate the idea of ever being anybody's like fucking fitspiration or anything like that I think as much as anything it's a Oh, and I still struggle with. I think I was having a conversation with someone earlier about when people didn't like don't like being called an influencer and say I'm actually an activist. And I find both of those terms repulsive to eat yeah, up his yeah. compliments. Because it's like, no, I am a clown ultimately, but I am also <laughs> a big heavy lady who's made her peace with that. And that's what's happening to me. So that's what I'm going to talk
1: about, you know um but you can have influence without being an influencer I guess we uh think of influencers as you know Kardashians or people who get more free shit than we get Uh, yeah I want more free shit shit?
0: yeah fine where's the feminist
1: free shit Uh, yeah it's a feminist free shit come on but then I mean I guess your, your podcast I'm sure pretty much everyone listening to this will know your podcast hoovering so you've you've sort of been looking at themes of body image what we do to our bodies the fact that people in the main have kind of fucked up relationships with food yeah. um is there a gender thing attached to that I know you've had a lot of different guests yeah. on your podcast is there yeah
0: it's massive I, I
1: talk <clears throat> to
0: more women than men um I don't you know I think that probably was in my initial what one of the things I initially set out to do but, but you know it's not um, a sort of Part of the fixed aim of the podcast. Um, just more interested in them often, yeah, but um, at one point I got not unfairly called out by a listener because uh, she she had said I noticed, and she said it in the nicest possible way. But she says that I've noticed that when you do have a chap on, <laughs> you don't ask um, as 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 quickly in the conversation if at all have you ever had any complications with eating or has it always been an easy ride and actually it ha- it got to the point where what she'd accused me of was true and I've now redressed it but it's tricky because I had initially but like the first 20 guys I'd asked that question to had gone nah. oh and it still happens now because I forced myself to ask every single guest it and say you do not have to answer that by the way <laughs> um 90% of blokes, if they don't immediately say, nah, it's pretty simple, say, oh, yeah, I was fat when I was five. And um, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to get thin by the time I was nine. And you're like, oh, great. Great story. Like, whereas 90% of women you talk to of all ages will at some point have made themselves sick.
1: I know. It's and that really... is
0: really, really stark difference between you know, experiences with the complications of eating, like massively different, yeah.
1: And did you, I know I've, I've heard on various of your podcasts about you talking about, you were quite young when you first had eating issues, right? So you were yeah. a, a kind of a prepubescent, sort of 11 yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Uh, and sometimes you think of eating issues as being something that would affect people more at the time when they're getting towards being seen as how a woman should look or they're suddenly getting you know hips and boobs and they're like i hate this i feel self conscious so what was going on for you that you that made you kind of live on an apple a day at 11 were you even at secondary school then
0: no i had a weird school system i grew up in dorset where you had like a first school a middle school and an upper school so i was
1: i'm a dorset girl as well yeah so I from nice dorset Oh, I mean it's a comedy cul de sac, but I thought I'd throw it in. <laughs> I, <laughs> I it. Dorset, Jess. Come up with something oh. funny and
0: responsive. To- <laughs> <laughs> I'm bad, which is awful. Don't even know what um what bit of the compass of Dorset I'm from. Swanage. Um, South. You're from
1: South Dorset.
0: South Dorset. Okay.
1: You're welcome.
0: Um, different. Completely different. I'm sure.
1: So you had to so say you were at a middle school?
0: I was at a middle school, yeah. So it wasn't a school thing. School was fine. Um, I I had, I think now I look back and go, it was the beginning of the of my parents breaking up and they did break up when I was 11 and I moved in with my mum. And um, in the run-up to that, I have to be quite cautious because it's not my story to tell, but in the run-up to that, there had been other bad things had happened to one of my parents that had led to some bad mental health It's the safest broadest way to put it mm-hmm. so I think it was a very unhappy home around those years mm-hmm. um not that I was conscious of that at the time I think and I don't think sort of school was particularly affected or anything like that but um and then also I had sort of a lot of quite conflicted messages as a kid around eating like I have one half of my family are very um have pretty healthy relationships of eating, but on the whole are quite kind of um uh, what's the word where you're like and that's plenty for me like that mm-hmm. they're like that um and that's fine like you know they 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 made a little go a long way when they were all growing up and stuff mm-hmm. and they all kind of live like that still a bit although they're not like boring and they have lots of fun now that they but all, they
1: know when to stop eating. They know when to stop and they stop when they're full but also
0: they don't stop themselves having something lovely. They just have a tiny little bit of it. I don't know they've got good relationships with eating they they haven't necessarily got great relationships with other things that numb emotions um but my dad's side of the family uh where like there's massive red flags because they are uh real feeders like really 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 big fans of showing love through food and Mm -hmm. and I don't mean you know it's just all eat all up my I watch my dad still do it now with my son he will give him he'll give him even when he was two He give him an ice cream and um he'll finish it and then there'll be another one lined up and then there'll be another one lined up and until you know it's I mean a fucking weird level of just wanting to constantly pass food to the kid and so I was brought up with that but also with a deeply unhelpful visceral but quite funny, often, but visceral hatred of fat people. So I was, I was kind of under orders to eat loads, and I did, and I loved, you know, I loved eating. And I still do, but also I was, I was on the condition that I never showed it.
1: So eat loads, but don't be fat, which is yeah. literally uh, the. Absolutely. I don't know not about algebra, but I'd say that's probably the algebraic equation for bulimia
0: eat loads
1: don't be fat because there's only one way to really achieve that or an enormous amount of exercise and I remember when I was training for the first marathon I did just I'd slip that in there and the um and the trainer said uh you can never outrun a bad diet Callie I was like okay because I was still like gaining weight and I was running 20 mile runs and I think he was like you do actually also need to look a little bit at diet I was like why can't I (laughs) why can't Uh. I live in a family bag of onion rings it should be fine now (laughs) that's the reason I'm running um so yeah you, so as a kid, you had this, and, and were you? Now you look back at it. What mm-hmm. kind of kid were you? Sort of body? Were you a kid who? Because at school, I was a, I was a fat kid, and I was told I was a fat kid, and I grew up thinking. I know you, I've been on your podcast and talked about this, yeah. but I grew up thinking I was a fat and also therefore ugly kid, and yes. I still see that person when I look in the mirror, or when I, I still think I'm overweight even though yeah. I know I'm probably not. But I, I always think that I, I'm still that person. And I don't think that's ever gone from inside my head, even when I've been really thin in my 20s. You know, I always thought I was fat. So, and I can't now, even as an, even in my 50s, I can't quite decipher, was I at any point problematically fat? Or was that the narrative? Yeah. Did people yeah. say it to me? And I responded so much that they were like, oh, we'll keep telling her that. But where, where were you in terms of what was really going on and your perception of it?
0: I think it it sounds so similar, actually. I perceived myself, I I think I was like a wiry and wiry kid and stocky, but wiry until I was about five or six. And then in my mind, I was like piling it on. And by like nine, 10, by nine, I hated photos of myself. And yeah, I I was a fat kid. I I would never have been, it wasn't an era where you identified proudly as fat. It wasn't a neutral term, it was a negative thing. Mm. Um, I don't think I was particularly bullied for my size, but I, I knew in my mind I was fatter than most of the kids around me or as fat as the other fat kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I look back now and think, is, I probably, it was probably, I don't think I was ever problematically fat. Mm-hmm. I, if there is, you know, I certainly don't think a doc, like doctors intervene. I still, there's that's a complicated issue in itself, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. the language around that. But I, you know, you look back now and go, yeah, it was. You, you had skinnier mates but uh, I don't know it was I do remember overhearing you know par- my parents friends commenting on how much I ate I remember that and I remember the shame in that and I remember and it still being remember like my that. dad was yeah, yeah I remember it, it was on the beach and there was like a hut where you could get ice creams or pasties or crisp or like you know high energy delicious beige shitty food (laughs) and um still my dad being my dad would be like what do you want next what do you want next what do you want next and I do remember being like well actually I do want something else next but I'm really aware that so-and-so's dad I've just caught him giggling at this at this conversation and And was your dad
1: yeah and it is it's the I still feel shame sometimes I have to remember to sort of if I want to eat crap to think i don't need to yeah. go and eat crap quietly like in my head yeah like my so
0: and so's dad thinks anymore, yeah actually, i can yeah, just I eat crap,
1: yeah. crap. Yeah, yeah and it, and it's a real revelation but it still feels i still feel guilty if i if i buy like yeah. a bag of crisps after a gig if I go into a service station, I, think I just really want a family pack of like crappy crisps to drive back from Southampton with. And why not? Yeah. I feel really sad. I feel like I almost want to go, oh, I've got three people in the car. We're all going to share these crisps. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't go as far as saying it. But why does it matter? And who gives a shit? Yeah, 100%. Um,
0: yes, I feel like I, I, sorry, it's so boring to say it, but like same, same as you, same as you, same as you. I still feel, I still, I thought I've gone a long way to sorting out my relationship with eating, a really long way, and it's good, although the pandemic has rocked it at times, but that hasn't sorted out my self-perception. And I absolutely still, if I look in the mirror, see someone enormous. And and then, and like we were saying before, have that thing where I go, oh, why do you care? <laughs> Come
1: and you've got, you know, you're you not mean, meant
0: to. You're a good feminist. Come on, be a better feminist. I know it's don't so care, hard, Own isn't it. it. <laughs> Enjoy it. Try and own it. Pretend you love it. Pretend you love Pretend you nerd yourself. I think it's too big an ask. Often, I think, is surely can it just be fine to just be happy enough to just crack on? Do I know, I it's, it? but that is a
1: really big <laughs> ask. And when you did, I don't yeah. know if we um, overtly said this. So, Hench, um, it, weightlifting is your is your thing. I think you did say that yeah. you've got kind of even keener on it, so, sort of since yeah, the show. I have. And the posters, which anyone will put links to all of this in the show notes, but the posters for somebody who's not completely sure about what they think about their body, even though they're doing a show that's looking at kind of, I guess, um, sort of shredding body fascism in a way and body shaming. That's kind of the vibe of the show. But it, there's a big gap between that and daring to let yourself be seen on the poster for the show. And your poster, yeah. which was incredible, I think one won an award. That, that was very, that was pretty vulnerable position you put yourself in, in terms of body. Yeah,
0: thanks. Yeah, I wasn't sure about doing it. I worked with an amazing photographer called Idol Sukan, and she, we had a lot of conversations before doing it. And I mean, fundamentally, it was airbrushed <laughs> how so airbrushed it, was that I was gonna, I was gonna
1: it, ask you that and then I and I thought Should I didn't I have want finished? boobies
0: in it I didn't want and there were ones where I so I did I still had a bra and pants on for the and it but it looks like I'm kind of a, like a white like it's there's chalk all over me it looks like, like you're a white nudie that's what yeah it, looks, it look, like. looks like I'm more nudie and there were various versions of it where I was like I never I never was like right can you make my tummy smaller can you make my arms smaller can you but in genuinely there were times where I like my you've made my tits massive mate like rein that in like there were bits <laughs> there were bits of that going on or like that there's a lot of sh- <laughs> like I don't know it's all very in my mind that's not what I looked like or what I looked like when those photos were taken or certainly not by the time a few months after the photos were taken or whatever there's there's more weight photoshopped on the barbell Mm
1: -hmm. than I
0: was really lifting because you had to lift the barbell like had to lift the barbell up like 100 times in the photo like a a day's photo shoot so you know there was probably like 50 kilograms on it when it looked like 100 there's lots of cheating things with it, but, but she, her philosophy is, was, we're not showing you exactly as you are. We're showing you like in what you are in your mind's eye when you're lifting. And actually, I was like, okay, great, let's go, because it, it, it that is what wait I love the 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 functionality of weightlifting and the not. Um, oh my gym doesn't have any mirrors it's a dream it's about how well you're doing the thing you're doing it's not about what you look like
1: when you're is it quite um male because i i i run and do other stuff now i don't use gyms but i did spend years going to gyms and i used to absolutely and i'm sure you've heard a lot of women say this i used to absolutely hate going to the weights spit because yeah. it was all blokes it was they were always would always tell me what to do even though i did have a trainer and he told me exactly what i should do and they'd be like no no darling do you want to do it you know do you, wanna, you need to do it like this, let me show you and they do and you'd feel and also that sort of looking at your body i'd be like i don't need you to look at my body i don't need yeah. you to look at it in the affirmative or not yeah, it's, it's not yeah. here for you to look at i'm trying to work out so i used to like i'm sure plenty of women um i used to just not go to the weights room or go at a time when I hope there wouldn't be all those blokes there but how is it yeah. so you presumably are in quite a male populated weights area still are you or has it become less male it's be- uh,
0: well it's really interesting actually a lot of things have happened I think even since doing hench um I So the quick answer is I now train mainly in a CrossFit gym where they're sort of on mirrors as standard. They're big old warehouses and it's all about functional fitness, about Mm -hmm. strength, gymnastics and fitness. And I'm more into the weightlifting side of it than anything else. But I have actually sort of started falling in love with the other bits, too. I just love the fact that it's you're in your own. you're You're in a race with yourself, essentially, to just do your best and then you there's there's lots of set things that you can do there's lots of variety and then you try again in six weeks and you see some improvement and it's that's a great feeling especially the older I get the more I'm like oh get in mm. like I've just learned to do this thing anyway I love that but uh two things happened recently one I went uh, towards the end of last year to a normal gym just to train by myself and um it really tickled me that it was still, I would say, 80% men in that weights area, mm-hmm. but all, and I mean all of the men in there, were doing bodybuilding, which is high reps of low weights mm-hmm. to make their body look a different way. Mm-hmm. All of the women that were in there, there are about 10 women in there, were all doing massive heavy compound lifts mm-hmm. to make themselves fitter and stronger mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought oh how if that's
1: how a metaphor things have changed. for the patriarchy exactly. I don't know what is but and- it's joyful
0: but just last week I was training in like a change gym by myself and um I saw it was busy and I saw that a chap was waiting he was deadlifting on carpet which is really like there's a cushion there's really like bouncy floor for doing that which means you can drop your weights and I was about to move out of the area I was in. So I just said to him, like, excuse me. So he took his headphones off and he was like, just came over and said, OK, I'll lift that for you. And I said, no, 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 no. I was just going to tell you um, if you want to use this area, I'm moving into Iraq. And he was like, you take one side. I'll take this side. And I was like, I'm not I'm not asking for help Shit. or advice. And it just went on and on. And it did. It, there was a bit of a language barrier. But I was like, oh, in the end, I just went, nah, like, get all right. OK, get, yeah, get fucked. Bye bye. OK, bye. I just sort of moved off into a different area. I couldn't both keep talking to him because he's just kept assuming I wanted to help.
1: That being underestimated is, um, and it's for so many reasons, isn't it? I'm sort of preoccupied with the age size of that at the moment and the fact that people do have certain assumptions about, and they, even when people say, you know, when people say to you, you know, oh God, you've lost weight, you look really good. And you think that's pretty dodgy actually, because what you're saying is it, when I, either you've remembered me as fatter than I am, or you think that if I was heavier than you think I am now, that wouldn't be great. And that I'm, I, I know when I'd had the kids,
0: is the most it's, toxic compliment that everybody's had again and again and again and it's, again and given yeah, we've all given it um, it's just an it's toxic it is the isn't it you if know, you, you li- unpack it even for two minutes you're like oh yeah you're in deep shit there yeah you're it's saying, not you're saying much one. worse last time you saw me because what I was happier potentially like you know you don't know you don't know, you don't know anything about someone I, god I mean that's a bloody awful. just shut up about what other people look like namaste
1: But also with age, when people say, God, you don't know your age. And I think, oh, okay. So if I did, if I did, what would be the problem? And also, I think, well, how many people my age have you met? But like, are yeah. you thinking of what your great auntie Dora was like when she was my age, when you were a child? Yeah, I was going to say, you... are you
0: thinking of how you perceived everyone as, yeah. o- as older because you were five?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or have you met any people my age who yeah. you know, who live in the modern day world? But did you? I mean, you've obviously got a little um, little son now, and how how old is he now? Is he preschool five. still? Five? No,
0: he's he's in reception yeah.
1: Just, did you have to do homeschooling, or was it yeah. more home not throttling?
0: um it was only this last burst he wasn't at school in lockdown one um it was a learning curve yeah it felt like being in an episode of black mirror it brought out all the worst sides of both of us did it i think i realized i was a much more like i was i wasn't the parent i thought i was i really i was like sit sit up straight (laughs) you can draw a better cat than that I, I got caught off mute he kept unmuting me and at one point his teacher said that is so good what you've done there is so good because you could hear me go yeah I know you can do better than that <laughs> really competitive so I just sort of had to back out of it a little bit <laughs> so I was like, oh, who are you who are you um and also realized that I had so many friends who've I mean, I was so lucky my kids only in reception, really, because I have mates with kids from reception who whose school had said, get to do a bit of colouring, maybe find a pine cone job done that week. Whereas my son's school are very good, but had like arranged stuff from nine to half two. And I was like, shit. And actually, it took me a couple of weeks to realize, why are we doing it all?
1: Yeah. Like, in Scandinavia, why are we rushing you back? Been, exactly, yeah.
0: wouldn't even be in school yet. No. Why are we rushing back from the park for phonics when actually we were having a nice time? And we're all gonna be much saner if we don't rush like that. Yeah. yeah. So it just took it did take me a good sort of halfway through it to realise I was doing it all wrong by trying to do it all.
1: Imagine if somebody um, eighteen months ago had said, "You're going to say the sentence. Why are we rushing back from the park for phonics?" And you'd have thought, what the that would have been more baffling to you than seeing people walking around in masks and everybody, yeah. everybody grounded. And do you th- when you look at your at, at being a, a mum, I know you've talked again on your podcast, and and uh, you know I've I've had a couple of conversations with with you as well um, outside of the broadcast arena. But if you it, when you think about the Kind of emotions that we put into food and all the stuff that I know you're, you know, 15 years younger than me. So you had a slightly different era upbringing, but still sort of similar generation. Mm. So we weren't sort of talking about our emotions and having kind of frank conversations with our parents and them trying to delve into who we actually were much as they loved us, it was yeah. a very different parenting vibe, yeah. wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was, you know, when you left home, that was it. No one was boomeranging back. It's like, bye. Yeah. You're never coming back. Um, yeah, that's it's just
0: a huge the... sense of failure if you boomerang back. Exactly. Like something had gone terribly wrong.
1: Yeah. Nobody had their, like, 20-something <laughs> kids. You know, I remember, I remember yeah. reading you know about 15 years ago that the average age for kids to leave home now was like 23 and me thinking shit and now I'm thinking god I'll be happy if my two get their shit together by 23 that would be <laughs> kids if you're listening but when you so you were so we grew up in a way um yeah. as uh, sort of hide, not hiding emotions but thinking we just had to deal with those yeah. But I know you've also spoken about the fact that you're someone who has extreme emotions and Mm. you handle them with weightlifting, with nutrition, with looking Mm. after yourself. So how does that all fit together, the kind of extremity of being you versus the you that you tried to be as you grew up? Oh God, such
0: a brilliant question. I don't... I think I, I... Oh, I mean, I've never really... I've never thought about it that specifically in terms of timeline. My, I, there will be different coping mes- mechanisms as I would have gone along, I suppose, and they've just got healthier. You know, I probably, well, I was definitely used to um, use different things to numb emotions, basically. So I, I do have very extreme emotions. I, I'm I'm quite quick to cry. I'm quick to anger. I'm quick to joy, and they're all like real spikes. I think. It's not so the management has been different. So, from about 12 all through my 20s, binge drinking and binge eating um, with some purging. And then in my 30s, like oh, just a great big. Sp- of change and it all I suppose the catalyst was having my son I desperately wanted a baby I had my son and then it felt like that in a way weird way opened a door to look at myself through a different lens and then my management I addressed those problems as problems rather than seeing them as just being how a fun gal lives Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't not do those things to excess I just now I'm aware when what i'm doing is to numb an emotion and accept that <laughs> mm-hmm. um i don't never do it it's just i know what it is now and i know other ways i might do it as well uh overworking you know etc i also think i am just rather than managing those things just a lot more accepting of it um like there are days where i'm Ah, uh, especially hormone induced, where I wouldn't want to be around me. And you just have to work out your how best to manage your relationships. Mm-hmm. Essentially, when you're in those bad places,
1: mm-hmm. um, but that's hard and, when you're with a small kid, right? Because I, yeah. I, I don't know if you're a, are you a single parent now? I know you are. Yeah, are you are you bringing up your kid alone? Or uh,
0: no, I co-parent with my ex. Definitely, and mm-hmm. he's a brilliant dad and uh, a classy co-parent and friend
1: they're so much easier to like when they're your ex aren't they it's yeah. like oh suddenly yes. i'm full of magnanimity that i just wasn't there when they were at
0: home i just sort of watch things happen that used to make me seethe, yeah. and boil and think "None ah, not my problem fine now funny now if anything Biff. even if anything quite funny now yeah but you do that um you so do, your, do co-parenting,
1: you. your co-parenting yeah and also
0: i have a partner who i live with and it's slow and In terms of their her relationship with Rudy is, you know, it's come on, like, not that there was ever anything wrong with it, but my I um my intent was to let my son set the pace with that. Um, Our intent was, and but I think lockdown has given us all a weirder, you know, an intense experience in our relationships. I think. probably have fallen in love with each other quicker than they would have done if life had been as travelly and as busy as it as it would be in normal times
1: it was kind of shit or bust wasn't it for a lot of relationships and people don't realize that lots of those relationships will have been adults in kids lives for the first time it's complicated enough people saying oh suddenly we had to cohabit or suddenly but actually when you suddenly bring another adult into your kids orbit
0: yeah and that's a lot on both of them actually and they've both done amazingly but we're very It's me, actually. I feel very slow and steady. I hadn't intended to be in another relationship so quickly, so I'm very cautious when it comes to easing, easing change upon my son these days, because... It's so obvious when they're not coping with change when they're five or or when there's something's troubling them. You know?
1: Yeah. No, one of my kids was five when, when I split up with their dad. And I do remember being really shocked at the ways in which a bit like I coped with it, really. There were ways in which he was so resilient that yes. I would never have imagined he would be. And same for me. And then the things that I just had not anticipated for him or for me just kind of bit each of us on the arse different things and you realize it is this real kind of juxtaposition I guess like like all of humans where we are so vulnerable and so strong but we might not quite expect the one side to come out when it does or the other so it is absolutely and do you think um in terms of sort of feelings I definitely found when I became a a mum and like you I had a massive sort of I really was compelled to have children it felt massively important Mm. to me and I sort of kind of wanted them as roots and branches and as an anchor in the world which is a terrible thing and you shouldn't sort of i shouldn't condone it but it totally worked you know mine are in their 20s now and it absolutely helped calm me down i settled i got much more comfortable in my own skin i could express emotion this isn't me saying to anyone listening why don't you want to have kids totally down with whatever anyone wants to do but personally it really really helped me and it helped me dare to sort of own emotions and express them in a way I'd never had before what was the sort of emotional impact of you having Rudy
0: yeah similar really I the desire to have him was it felt like it was something external to me and it just wasn't a choice I I, I exactly like you're saying really I have brilliant women in my life who are, and then but brilliant women in my life who are you know don't want kids and I think in a way well, in many ways, oh, good for you! Like because mm-hmm. it was so overwhelming for the years. It was. I always knew it, and but when it was like, mm-hmm. mm, like sirens going off, I wrote stand up about it. It was like, oh my god, I was just obsessed. I just needed to get it done, <laughs> and got it done. Um, well, one so far, but um, I think I was already really emotional <laughs> before I added. Um, it's certainly certainly made me i i think i already said it but look at myself and how i treat myself and how i perceive myself just look at myself through a totally different lens and um and that includes you know owning weaknesses in terms of i I feel like oh i'm doubling down on things you've already said but my mum wisely said to me I don't envy you parenting now when I did it you know no one gave a shit this the standards are so much higher now we have such a more child-centric world you're Mm -hmm. you're expected to be so much more in their world than they are in yours than Mm -hmm. in any time in history and um so I decided really to not read too much not invest too much in that and just sort of do my best and it meant that and it still means that I'm quite open about the ways in which I'm a diet I'm not the parent I, I'm, not the, I'm not golden bollocks parent I'm not an in- Instagram parent I coped because of the massive emotions and he's inherited them you know mm-hmm. it's fireworks mm-hmm. and I don't always cope brilliantly with his behaviours um, I try and so does he and it's got better as he's got older but the toddler years were oh, Hard. There are
1: still really moments hard. I look back, particularly when when I first split up with their dad, and I look back at trying to cope. And I now look, I also look sort of with a bit more benevolence on myself. But I think, yeah. you know, I had a big job at the time. I was the kind of breadwinner. I was doing a lot of the childcare. And it was... I just remember some of the things that happened where I kind of know why it got to the point where I smashed the three musketeers house on the floor, <laughs> but in, in as an act on its own, it looks completely, and it was yeah. unreasonable and it was really upsetting. And the kids will suddenly say things. They'll be like, oh God, do you remember the time you did whatever it was? And you think, shit, yeah. uh, those things will be with me to my grave. But I also think I, I remember someone saying to me very early on, um, that it, it's not about not having rows and fall-aparts with your kids. It's all about how you reunite, and yeah. that's part of life to learn that there will be fireworks, there'll be sparks, there'll be pain. Yeah. But what do you do afterwards? That's the strength of the family, and that's yeah, the strength yeah, of a yeah. relationship. And I thought actually that i a. Real, I've managed to apply it to my children. I can't do it with intimate adult relationships, still. <laughs> but with children, <laughs> I've got very good. It's at very the well unions. done. <laughs> very grown-up parents to my grown-up children. But you've had. um I remember talking to you the first time I met you was. Um, Sarah Pascoe was doing a new material night at um, the Camden Head, and I'm trying to mention all venues possible so people listening can support them. The lovely Camden yeah. Head in Camden, and we spoke in the break. I think you'd either just been on or you are about to be on, and you, I guess, Rudy probably was tiny. I guess you had a ba- you had a baby at home. Basically, it would have been about four years ago. And I remember you saying to me because you'd come through with that group of people, many of whom had become really big names yeah. by then. So you, you know, you you started. I think 2008. You started right, yeah. as a stand-up. So your sort of, um, you know, class of 2008 were doing really well. Yeah. And I remember Just you saying to me, yeah, yeah. yeah, and you and you, yeah, and you said to me, um, what, what I really, you said it's what it's about thinking what you actually want out of stand-up, and you said, what I know I really want is to have a group of people who love what I say I don't mind if that's a small group I don't mind if that if I could sell out if I could sell out theatres with people who really want to hear my shit that's what I want as a stand-up and it was a real um revelation to me at the time actually because I hadn't actually really thought about what it was I wanted other than to get better at it and it really helped me crystallize what I felt about stand-up so I owe you a debt of thanks for saying it oh but you also have done it. So, um, you know, four years later, that kind of seems to me to be where you've got, isn't it? Exactly the thing you articulated. Yeah, I think
0: so. Yeah. Um, I hope that doesn't like denote a lack of ambition. But I don't. I think you you do witness when you witness stratospheric success. And I would, you know, I'm not like I only want to do one panel show. year. I don't. I want to do everything. <laughs> And I would like one day to have a hot tub. Mm. That's yet like I do have some pretty um, bougie ambitions. <laughs> but when it comes to um, actual live comedy, oh, I mean, maybe this is too sort of niche and technical. But once you become so big that you're, if you choose to, are playing arenas, you have to do different type of stand up. That's not the type I necessarily want to do. That's very physical and accessible. Mm-hmm. And I'm not for having bits like that, but I also want to be able to say things I really think and feel and divide rooms and et cetera.
1: Could there not be a time there, when we think about the people who become the arena comedians, whether they're, yeah. you know, I know I really watched this working, as you know, on as I did on the other side of the camera in comedy for yeah. so many years. And I've seen particularly American podcasts because I worked for American Comedy Central, not the UK one. And I would watch people who went through, and they had almost like a sort of... Um, almost like a sort of graduation program where they would go to the clubs, Comedy Central in the US would look at talent in the clubs. They would then give them little segments on some of their compilation shows. Then they might progress to having their own little bit of a special. Then they'd get a special then. And that's kind of how the Amy um, Schumers and so on got where they got on Comedy Central was working through that system. Um, what that, and then when you think about the people who then do the really big stuff, so taking Amy Schumer as an example, you know yeah. she sort of struggled along for years, supporting kind of dickheads on tour, dealing yeah. with sexist shit, and then she became really kind of Hollywood bubblegum pink sort of for a bit, and then burnt out for a bit. Yeah. Um, I hope none of this is litigious. I think this is echoing pretty much what's already out there as the narrative. So, would yeah. do you think there could be a time when to become the arena comedian, you might be able to be the person you are saying the stuff you say that is more nuanced that yes it's got to physically appeal to the space and Mm. it's got to be enough common entry points that thousands of people can come but but that could have more of a similarity to what you actually want to say on a smaller theatre stage
0: yeah potentially potentially never say never I don't know Uh, it's not like something I'm going to be driving towards I think it's just so massive that scale people I think I think one of the things I really love about comedy is that it you feel like you are in it together which i think you can do up to i've had you know not tour gigs but i've had gigs like for uh tour support for massive comedians or guilty feminist in theaters that are like about 2000 mm-hmm. um and that's felt amazing it is doable. It, just, it must be doable. It just depends on the context, doesn't it? It Depends on who those two thousand people are.
1: It's so hard when it's because I I do, I do a lot of kind of keynote speaking and those kind of like conference addresses. When you're booked as a, they know I'm a comedian as well, but they book you because they want some sort of meaningful takeout. But it's amazing yeah. what you can get under the radar when you've not been booked as a comedian because yes, everyone's yeah, in, yeah. everything's a pleasant surprise. Yeah. If you're not an absolute, if you're not Mike from HR, you're fascinating. Yeah. Um, and they've had to listen to so much shit that it's very easy to show. Yeah, <laughs> but you could also get much more nuanced stuff out there than I've yeah. yet found out how to do as a comic. Um, because there is a sort of like that the need to make people laugh, which obviously I do appreciate, mm-hmm. is kind of what you vote for as a comedian, but it does slightly sort of um impact on the level you that's why podcasts are great, right? Because you can get into yeah. sort of a lot of depth but also have a laugh. No one's yeah. going, Oh, there hasn't been a punchline for two minutes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. you can actually say what you think. But does it feel I know when I was talking to Desiree Birch for an earlier podcast in this series and she was saying I said does it feel like you're successful now so you've got the stuff that if oh my god team, I hope
0: she feels like she's successful now well she
1: she uh, the way she described it was I'm standing on top of a hill and and I've uh, and I can see the valley behind me so uh, and I can see it could be ahead of me again so she knows she's and that's not mm. by the way in any you know people should listen to the episode it's not her being at all arrogant saying I'm top of the class she's no, just she's, saying like, I'm aware yeah. I could slip down again and yeah. it's my it's my moment uh, and I've worked really hard for it and I kept bashing yeah. my head against a wall and in the end the wall moved away Yeah, it was my time but how does Beautiful. it feel? For you now being at this point where to all of us you seem successful
0: um oh well thanks that's nice um it feels for me i was having this conversation with a an objectively more successful friend just in the last few days i had lots of conversations with i think I learned lots of things along the way that have helped me. I feel an enormous sense of gratitude for the success I've got now. I also feel deserving of it, which I don't think I'd have been able to say had it come any sooner. Maybe mm-hmm. two two years but anything in the first decades I don't think I could have really meant it. I'd have probably said it but I don't think I'd have meant it. So I think when you are when you are when you've got in your in the pit of you thankfulness and a deserving you know a sense of deserving it but and that knowing you can do it I think that all that means is you're genuinely not arrogant but confident you're like yeah the work I do I know I can do to a good standard like I'm not winging it I don't think I'd be very sure in my boots if I felt like I was winging it I've witnessed I feel so grateful that if the I'm not that you know the pandemic has been horrific for so many people but I feel grateful that that it happened when it did and not even a year before Mm -hmm. um I
1: why is that why why are you grateful it didn't happen a year before because no one
0: no one knew I was on a grand scale no one was booking me for any telly radio no one was buying my scripts
1: so you had to get to the point where you'd had hench and people knew yeah. you and you'd have that spurt of can one have a spurt? i don't know what the collective noun is the panel shows you had a spurt yeah. of panel shows a spurt
0: of panel shows so i feel differently about the different types of work that i have i think one thing about getting to success however you define that after several years is that to enjoy those several years and not become bitter you have to and i was going to talk about it actually as my like damascene moment um or one of them but um you must it's such a hippy dippy thing to say but it is huge you must enjoy the journey uh, for me i if the i watch comedians who have had more success more quickly and or just for whatever reason aren't as sure in their boots and it's they are miserable a lot because they are still comparing themselves to other people it's exactly the same as in the gym like if you're looking around and go, oh god he's already finished he's on to the next thing she's on to that thing or oh there's this new thing starting why haven't I been booked for that you, you it's just no way to live mm. like it's just for me was living oh, I wish I was more succinct i can't live in a goals focused way Mm -hmm. i i feel tense at the thought of people who function by going for the next prize Mm -hmm. or win Mm -hmm. or victory like i i would i function by enjoying the journey to those things Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean it means i get to love it when i get those Mm -hmm. things um and it also means i don't feel too i don't get too knocked when i don't get the things um i think the pandemic's done strange things some of my colleagues heads are thinking oh this is maybe it's all over it's all over and it's like, oh, no you know you move on to the next thing i've had a script i had a, a script not go with the people who commissioned it and um, i think i expect i was like oh god why why am i not devastated and mm. I'm not devastated because, not that I loved every minute of writing it bloody hard, but I got paid to write something and I wrote it. Mm -hmm. Great. It's Mm -hmm. one of the first things I've ever done from the beginning to end, let alone been paid like that for. Mm -hmm. And I did it. And it doesn't mean I can't do something else with it one day. You move on to the next thing. If you're going to stop and be so thrown by each thing, that's going to crush your creativity and your happiness, I think. So for me, it's about being journey-focused and process-focused and enjoying the things for themselves for their own sake, not for the praise of them mm-hmm. and not for prizes.
1: Mm-hmm. That's massively helpful, actually. I think you may have just given me the Monday morning talk that I needed because I was very <laughs> much getting into the... It's really hard and actually it's easy to yeah. think getting into this all as late as I have and having had you know, reasonable success in other things I've done in my life. It's so not because I think I deserve to get this, get anywhere any more quickly than anyone else at all. But I sometimes feel very much out on a limb as somebody who much older got into this and seeing people, you know, uh, yeah, you know what it's like you see people who get really rewarded very quickly. You see people you hugely admire who no one's ever heard of. And it's just having the yeah. courage, you know, to, to know that the only person you're competing against is yourself. But it yeah. takes and a lot absolute to implement
0: that. Game changer. It, yeah. it, it, it it works in the gym for me too. Yeah, it, I cannot be like look like it's so joyful if you're just in a race with yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna be. In, that's gonna be my thing for the week: being a race with myself. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking moment? Um
0: oh god well there is that and actually that that attitude to work I have to give credit I'd love to give credit I should say to my friend Sarah Pascoe she gave me a book about six years into my stand-up career where I felt like I was left behind and you know I felt like I wasn't getting the work I deserved and you know several points thought why am I doing this it's so thankless my parents think I should get a proper job you know she gave me a book by an Austrian poet um, called Rilke um, called Letters to a Young Poet and it's amazing but I mean the poetry is probably too difficult for me but the conversations with this young poet about I think everything I've just said that it changed the way I look at everything to mm. not be in it for critics praise to genuinely give zero fucks about what that that side of things about the awards winning side of things about fame per se about coverage about brand Mm -hmm. and just just take pride in your work and enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it you're doing it because you you love doing it and if Mm -hmm. you don't you shouldn't
1: Brilliant. I think that's also an enormously important thing for people to hear right now, whether they perform or they yeah. don't. So many people, I think, have got to the point where they're like, "Who the fuck even am I?" I've lost Well, all and everyone's
0: has become invisible. Yeah. it's been a weird year. This really is real. Weird. Yeah, it's not permanent. I should say it's real, but it's impermanent, and it's not. You know, yeah, it's easy. It's... I
1: think at, um, this happening at I turned. I've had two uh, two birthdays in lockdown. That started with a oh. five. I turned fifty one, then I turned fifty two, because that's how time works. And I was a bit like, shit, this happening now, a 52-year-old suddenly grounded with a garden. I was like, this is early retirement. This is shit. I had to, it didn't feel like a sabbatical. I was like, no, this is properly, you know, I actually would tell people about, it. I bought a special thing to plant bulbs. And that was when my friend Joe was like, fucking hell, mate, you need to get a grip here. Um, so I, th- that's, that's really lovely to hear that. And I'm going to, I'm going to look up that book straight after this. Um, what's your favourite joke, Jess?
0: Um, what do Germans think come between fear and sex? Go on. Funf. An absolute classic. I don't know. I wish I knew who wrote it.
1: Did this come from your Austrian roots?
0: No, no, that's it came not the from sort of a, like a joke book, like a joke book. Someone, you know, like an aunt bought me in my 20s.
1: <laughs> I like the thought it might have happened around the Austrian uh Christmas table with the school <laughs> and
0: uh... yeah, they'd have all gone, yeah, what's the joke?
1: <laughs> and if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be?
0: Um. Uh, oh it's so tricky I I would go with either enjoy the journey or I'll cheat and take a second one and say I think you almost certainly have more choices than you think you do love I it feel like yeah we make we make our lives so full of things that feel like traps that aren't
1: Thank you so much, Jess. You've been Pleasure. amazing. Thanks for
0: having me. Thank you so much.
1: That was Jess Foster Q. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And in fact, this week, it's going to be two things. The first is to read Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. I'll put details of that in the show notes. And the second, is that in all my comedic endeavours this week, and it is so bloody lovely to be back performing live again, I am going to try to remember that the only person I'm competing with is me. And I'm going to try and enjoy the journey. Now, that is easier said than done, but I'm going to give that a proper whirl. Namaste, Motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karush Adami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. So that's the show for this week. Thank you so much to Jess for joining me. You can find links to her tour dates, podcast, and all the other good stuff in the show notes. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to Emmy Award-winning television and radio presenter, Baz
0: I was sitting in my mum's kitchen one day and there was a nun who had done a skydive
1: and my mum turned around and went Shit, that'd be brilliant I'm Callie Beaton until next time motherfuckers
0: <laughs> Namaste Ma